Hello and welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with the A.B. Corcor Foundation for Mental Health. I'm Terry, the creator and co-host of this podcast. I've lived with depression most of my life, and I know how easy it can be to feel all alone in the experience. I'm not alone, and you aren't either. And I'm Dr. Anita Sands, a licensed clinical psychologist and life coach with a number of my own diagnoses, all of which bring a certain amount of anxiety and depression along with them. There is great power in shared experiences. We share our own as we engage in intimate and candid conversations with our weekly guests, exploring different perspectives on and experiences with depression. We keep it real because depression is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. Hi, Terry. Hello, Anita. So if you listened last week to When Doctors Are Depressed, you heard a refreshingly candid discussion of mental health training, stigma, and failings in the medical profession. Frankly, it was kind of shocking. Yet for anyone in the field, it was likely no surprise at all. Today, we're going to continue our discussion with trauma surgeon Dr. Michael Weinstein in an interview recorded a few years back. In part one of his interview, we focused on the institutional changes that he thinks are necessary to reduce and address depression among doctors and other healthcare professionals. Today, we hear about Michael's very personal experience with depression and the challenges and lessons of switching roles from being the doctor to being the patient. Michael begins with a bit of family history that, along with the many stresses of his medical training and work, may have increased his risk for depression. Here again is Dr. Michael Weinstein giving his voice to depression. My grandfather, who um, for the last 20-some years of his life, he was depressed in and out of facilities very aggressive treatments and um i think i saw that and saw that uh, that's that that's my destiny and i'm i'm not i'm not hitting it at 65 or 70 i'm hitting it at well i guess i was 48 and uh that's the only future i could see and um that's the scariest scariest thing in the world because that pain when it's deep really bad depression it's it's um it was just severe like every just every minute of the day was um occupied with thoughts and feelings that i didn't know how to make make go away certainly and didn't really even know how to lessen them um and uh you feel so trapped were they all related to being worthless being a burden everyone would be better off without you kind of thoughts yes absolutely you know, it starts. It's it starts more mild. Um, it started more mild, I should say, for me at least, um, with thoughts of failure, and then finding you know evidence of failure in everything you're doing, and mm-hmm. then then feeling you know de- <laughs> depressed about feeling like a failure, and it keep, it just keeps adding and adding multiple layers until yeah, yeah, I, I felt. I mean, it, it's hard for me to even say these days, but I, I, I truly felt that I was a burden on my family and my wife and kids and that, you know, it, they were the only things that were ever in my life holding me back from considering suicide. Um, but you can get, I got to a point where I really thought 
my mind could convince me that uh, that they were they'd be better off if I weren't there. Um, and certainly the world and everyone else would be it would be a better place without me. Um, and yeah, you hear. I mean, I had never really heard those types of thoughts from anyone else, or heard people speak that way. But well, what a dastardly illness! I mean, to convince you, a you're not sick, you're just worthless, and then right. to tell you that the people for whom you would live. Hmm. I don't even know what words to use. I mean, how, how as a community, as a, as a medical community, as a, just a general public, do we, do we communicate this to both sides, to the people who might lose someone with depression and to somebody with it? How do, how do we, how do we say it's that bad and get involved or what's the message, doctor? Help me, help me. Well, I mean, I think the work you're doing, for instance, is, is, is key in getting this message out and hearing as many stories, especially when people, you know, I, I think when people are in the throes of it, it can be really hard to hear. But if people can hear these messages before that, mm-hmm. um, and as they're beginning to recover, because everyone can recover. I, I really believe that so deeply in my heart. I remember the first day that it really was starting to lift and I called my wife and just said, you know, this is the first time I'm just so happy to be alive and so happy that I didn't take, that you guys kept me from taking action um, mm. otherwise. And um, um, there's so many reasons and so many ways to to find little bits of joy and meaning that it's... Um, I don't know how to get that message out other than keep talking about it and having these conversations and destigmatizing these conversations so that people can listen and hear and um, hear it on national platforms, international platforms. You described yourself as having treatment-resistant depression. And when I read that, I thought, oh, there will be people listening who are so glad to hear a doctor use that phrase because they've been told by doctors, you know, basically... Nothing works for you, like as if they're just difficult, as opposed to the things that they've been prescribed have been ineffective for them. So, treatment-resistant depression—it's real, and you have it. Oh God! Um, Fortunately, right now I don't. Good, um, which is interesting um, because in the throes of it. um, So this is now going about two years ago. Certainly, the worst episode of depression I've ever had. Nothing, nothing was working. Nothing at all. Um, talking to all sorts of people, different types of therapy, constant attempts at medication changes. And, uh, so that is treatment resistant depression, um, where there's nothing, nothing you're throwing at it is working. And it's so scary. Um, I, I mean, I called it end stage depression. I, you know, I, which I'm not sure truly. I, uh, I don't think truly exists um, in my heart, um, but I thought damn well I had it, and um, I, I thought uh, there was never I was never going to get better. So we want to stop for a minute to say we're about to get into some of Michael's really rocky waters and talk about that place of lost hope. But please realize he is speaking about his past. Michael's in a different place now, and that is exactly why he's sharing his story. He wants to remind you, all of us, 
that things can and do change for the better. Please hold on. You are not alone. I, I checked, yeah, checked myself in with my wife to an institution for psychiatric care, and uh, it was there voluntarily. I didn't, you know, I didn't necessarily want to be there. It was scary as hell just to admit that I was going to a psychiatric hospital. Um, I really thought, I certainly thought that would end my career. Since Michael had tried so many treatments that didn't work for him, as both a doctor and a grandson, he knew what was next. You know, the way the medical community sees the treatment of depression, it's medicines, you know, some psychotherapy, and then they're the big ones. Um, and they quickly recommended, uh, you know, aggressive treatment with, with uh, electroconvulsive therapy. He started that therapy and fell even deeper into depression's dark pit. And then I sunk into bed and, and wouldn't, wouldn't get out, wouldn't eat. And, um, you know, I, I understand from, from, from their standpoint, they were in charge of keeping me safe. Um, and said, you know, kind of threatened me if I didn't start get, you know, getting with the program. This is what's going to happen. We're going to put you in the locked ward. And I freaked out. Suffice it to say, Michael resisted. He was restrained and forcibly taken to an isolation room. It's a really hard, it's a really hard thing to go through. I get it. It's about safety. I think there are better ways to interact with patients when it comes down to those critical times that sometimes aren't always uh, used in terms of de-escalation and ways of putting people um, on your side rather than become, you know, forcing them to become defensive, but. At the same time, as hard as that whole thing was, it was humbling to be um, amongst a, a different population of folks. Uh, it was also, in some ways, interesting. Um, I, I learned um, about, you know, kind of being on their side and being uh, on the other side of this whole type of situation of care. How'd you get from there to here? crazy journey huh? um yeah. so being in the psychiatric hospital with other people who were i mean i was like i was amazed uh, well, you have those types of thoughts too <laughs> um yeah. and so you know i realized that if people could realize that they're not alone and that it's okay and if it, if anything even it's a strength and it it's um it's a courage to 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 to, to, to openly talk about these issues and you don't need to be ashamed to do so. Um, I, I wanted to show people that because I don't, I really, I, my, my main motive, I don't want anyone to ever have to go through that. What I went through, if I can, if I can possibly help you avoid this, I would really like to. It's amazing that, you know, we can talk about the issues and we can talk about statistics. The story and the narrative is so powerful. I'm just amazed that people can always identify parts of themselves in someone else's story. Yeah, you can say 350 million people and you can say one in four. Right. That's like talking about the national debt to me. Right. None of it means anything. I think that's a lot of people. But right. when you say to me, and I was restrained, I feel that in my gut. Right. You know, right. and I'm not going to forget that. What is the expression? Of, what is personal is universal. It's also a way that we get to control the narrative. I think that that's very empowering in a way. Yes. 
Yes. In the article, Michael wrote about his experience for the New England Journal of Medicine. He said, My healing has been considerable. I am happier and more optimistic than I have ever been in the past 50 years. I've I've recovered in, in ways that I really thought were on... I, I still find them so surprising. Um, for a while, I wanted to tell the story that I recovered and everything is great and hunky-dory and, like, you know, it's like the you know, the, the journey of the hero or something. And, um, but that's not life and, uh, and life has its ups and downs and it's learning to work with that and, and encounter those and realize that, um, it's all just as it should be and it will unfold and it will, and we, you can work through anything that arises. Um, every human has that possibility. So, Anita, one of the things that Dr. Weinstein said, and in this episode we're calling him Michael because it's more his personal story, but when he said he was in the psychiatric hospital and that he said, I was amazed, you have those type of thoughts too? And this is a doctor. And he did not know what those thoughts are. And, I mean, we talk about them all the time on this, and I'm not saying he should listen. All the time. All the time. I mean, it's really all important. The time. It's important for us to know for ourselves. So it's like, oh, these thoughts are a mm-hmm. symptom. It's important for us to know because if you start telling me you're having them, I can say, oh, oh, it's good for you to know that that's a very common thought. Mm-hmm. And the doctors and the people who are helping us, of course, you know, if we say we're having A, B, and C symptoms, you'd like them to be familiar with A, B, and C. Yes. Yes, you would. <laughs> yes, yes, you would. But I'm not sure that that, that, that level of, of specificity of these are the thoughts that a patient's likely to have if, you know, they're, they're in a major depressive episode. I don't think the average medical student is going to get exposed to that. I would wow. like to think psychiatrists who are specializing that would, but you know, someone someone whose um, whose specialty is is in trauma surgery, mm-hmm. I could e- I could easily imagine that that caught mm-hmm. him by surprise that he you know he did not know oh that's that's very common depressive mm-hmm. you know thought process right there. Well, so I wasn't going to do this, but I want to jump in here because yeah, at the risk of sounding self promotional, we have mm-hmm. put together compilations of people saying what their depression tells them. And so we literally have a 10-minute video that if anybody does need to hear uh, so that they understand the thoughts that they may be having are common, that somebody else may be having, so that they know what to say to start that conversation as opposed to just, hey, mm-hmm. if you're ever having bad thoughts. And then if there is anyone in the medical profession, um, reach out to us, Terry at givingvoicetodepression.com. That's Terry with a Y. And uh, we will get to a screening of that video. So go on with, with your reactions to, to what you heard, because I just thought he was uh, oh so forthcoming and so yes. refreshingly real and not real. speechifying. And, you know, he was still no. feeling no, he, what he went through. Yes. Yes, he was, he was, he was not, you know, he was not taking that objective view. He, he really truly combined, you know, his, his knowledge and experience as a, as a doctor. But then here, here's the thing that I really got from this, how powerful and how healing it is to hear this doctor being so human. And there's nothing like 
dealing with a, a mental health issue, a physical health problem, or burnout to remind a helping professional that they are human, that they yeah. are human first, that they're not superhumans. And I don't think it's just the indoctrination in our programs that tries to make us think that we're somehow different or immune to, um, you know, to those kinds of human problems. Sometimes it's it's coming from the, the people that we want to help. So clients and patients sometimes want to believe that helping professionals mm. are superhuman. And, and it can be difficult to recognize that Nope, you know, we're all in this together. We're all walking our paths together. Um, we're human beings with some specialized training and a, and a strong desire, passion, or calling to be helpful. Mm-hmm. But we're humans first. More details of Michael's humanity in both his article and the YouTube video that we will be linking to with this episode. So thank you again, even though it was years ago, Dr. Weinstein. And thank you, Anita, for sharing your own personal experience about training and just the need to uh, yeah. remind everybody that everybody is human. <laughs> Every human is human, <laughs> right? <laughs> it sounds silly to say it, but it's, it's true. It's so true. All right. We'll be back next Tuesday. We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding helps you better articulate and reflect on your own experience with depression or better understand how to support someone else who is struggling. If this episode has been of comfort or value to you, know that there are hundreds of others like it in our archive, which you can easily find at our website, givingvoicetodepression.com. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up, even if it's hard. If someone else is struggling, take the time to listen. Listen.